Loving Father God, as we reflect on your written word, may we behold your living word, Jesus Christ, that our hearts and minds may be transformed by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, to your praise and glory. Amen. Well, it dawns on me that I probably, at the beginning of the service, should have introduced myself for those who have no idea who the stranger at the front is. But if you're following your service sheets, now you will know, because I think it says it in terms of who the preacher is. But uh, it is good to be amongst you. Uh, In 2003, I was um, involved in organising and running a Christian urban festival in Liverpool city centre. I was uh, part of uh, Liverpool Diocese at that time. The festival was called One, and uh, as part of that festival, we had bands and speakers on city centre stages and various events in venues around the city centre. One of these events was called One Questions, and it was a question time style panel that I was asked to chair. It involved many key Christian and community leaders, including the then Bishop of Liverpool, local councillors and a leader of one of the largest churches in the city. There were several really good questions asked in that hour or so, but only one sticks in my mind all these years later. It was asked by a teenage girl, and it went something like this. Given that 200 or so years ago, committed Christians were arguing from the Bible that slavery was in line with God's will, what are the cultural blind spots that we live with today? What will our Christian descendants in the future look back on with respect to the church today and say, How could they have got it so wrong? It was, and still remains, a great question. And if you want to know how the esteemed panel responded, you'll have to ask me later, because there isn't time to to do that now. But I wonder how you might answer that question. Might it be our material greed and abuse of the environment? Or the way in which we have neglected for so long the equal ministry of women in the church? Might it be our theological tribalism or our assumptions that we have all the right answers? Maybe it's our reluctance to evangelize our nation or our failure to challenge inequality and poverty. Could it be our treatment of LGBTQ people and conflicting views that we hold about human sexuality? Or maybe it's something else entirely. It's easy for us to look back in history and think, how could they have been so wrong? But it's somewhat more uncomfortable to think that future generations of Christians will, in all likelihood, be looking back on our generation and saying the same. Uncomfortable, and yet, I would suggest, exciting. Exciting because it reminds us that Christianity is not some static package of belief or practice, but a dynamic journey of relationship with Jesus Christ infused with the active Spirit of God. We can only recognize past mistakes because the Holy Spirit is, as Jesus promised he would be, continually leading us into all truth. In this morning's Gospel reading, we find Peter getting it all wrong. 
And his error is made all the more poignant by the fact that it follows a unique insight in verse 29 about who Jesus is. Indeed, in Matthew's fuller version of these events, Peter was praised by Jesus for his spiritual insight and told that the church would be built on the example of his faith. So how did Peter get it all so wrong? Having heard Peter's bold statement that he is the Christ, Jesus goes on to warn his disciples of what will happen next, that he must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Of course, it's no accident that Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah is immediately followed by Jesus' first clear prediction to the disciples of his coming trials and death. If the disciples, prompted by Peter's insight, now see Jesus as the promised Messiah, it is essential that they see him as God's Messiah, following the path that God has ordained for him, rather than a Messiah of human making and understanding. This was Jesus immediately following up Peter's declaration by teaching him that his ministry as Messiah is not to be what they might have expected it to be. And that was Peter's problem. Perhaps still glowing from his unique insight into divine, divine secret, he simply could not reconcile what Jesus was now saying about the path that lay ahead with his deeply embedded understanding of the role of the Jewish Messiah. How could God's Christ be killed? And by the religious people that had been waiting for him no less. This just could not be. Surely God would save his son from such a fate and open the eyes of the people to see who he is, wouldn't he? And anyway, wasn't this Messiah supposed to unite Israel and defeat their enemies? The Messiah being defeated by Israel was just not part of the plan. It made no sense. And so Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, we read in the other Gospels, this shall never happen to you. How ironic. Peter had only just declared that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet here he is now taking that Messiah to one side to rebuke him about the nature of truth. Who did Peter think he was? But before we get too critical of Peter, we need to take a sober look at ourselves too. For we are, friends, all susceptible to Peter's error. We too declare in our worship, in liturgy, in song, the lordship of Jesus and the sovereignty of God. And yet it's all too easy to create God in our own image, to box God off, set limits on what we expect God to do, to be, to be like or to say. Be it the box of our favoured church tradition or our limited understanding of doctrine or ethics. Uh, you may have heard the story of a particularly conservative Baptist preacher who thought that Baptists were the only true Christians favoured by God. One Sunday he was getting into his triumphant stride and asked the congregation, who here is a Baptist? To which everyone raised their hands, everyone except that is for a little old lady sat on the front row. Noticing her, he asked, so you're not a Baptist then? She answered, no I'm not. So what are you, he asked. Church of England, came the reply. 
Well, the preacher looked down at her a bit more. Why, why are you Church of England? She quietly answered, well, I suppose it's because my parents were Church of England and, and their parents before me were too. Well, the Baptist preacher thought he now had her. So just suppose, he spouted, that your parents were idiots and their parents before were idiots too. What would that make you? The little old lady thought for a moment before replying, I suppose it would make me a Baptist. Now, before I get lots of letters of complaint, it is only a joke, and I could have easily picked on any Christian tradition, including Anglicanism. A joke, yes, but it illustrates the way that we so often make assumptions about how God thinks and acts. But God is not like us. He created us in his image and calls us to reflect his glory. It has to be that way around. God is God, and we are God's people. Jesus' careful explanation of what must happen to him was to ensure that right from the point at which the disciples' eyes were opened to the truth about him, their understanding and expectation were shaped by God's agenda rather than by theirs. That is why his response to Peter's rebuke was so strong. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Peter may well have been prepared to fight, even die, in order to protect Jesus' life, and yet had he done so, he would have undermined God's very purposes. I wonder, are we too ever in danger of undermining God's purposes through our well-meaning desire to protect and promote what we understand them to be. Well, there's food for thought and an intellectual conundrum. But there was another reason for Jesus moving so quickly from Peter's declaration to teaching them about his death. As well as ensuring that they understood God's purposes for the Messiah, Jesus knew that this path of the Messiah would also determine their own path. If any want to become my followers, Jesus declared to the gathered crowd, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I think in the uh, 21st century uh, Western world, we uh, lose sight of just how profound that statement is. It would have been a striking, forbidding image for those living under Roman rule. It would have struck fear into their hearts. They would most probably have seen people take up their crosses, and they were fully aware that for those who did, it was a one-way journey from which there was no return. In these few words, Jesus sets the way of Christian discipleship alongside the way of the cross that he himself must walk, an all-or-nothing, 100% commitment that supersedes our very lives. And he taught that God's kingdom purposes are not brought about through force and conquest, but through living service, loving service, and sacrifice. No one ever said that following Jesus would be easy, and if anyone did, then they were selling you something that is, at best, only part of the story. And I sometimes wonder, and I include myself, if we've allowed faith to become too domesticated, too safe, if we go to church expecting to feel comforted but never challenged. 
if this passage tells us anything, is that the easy path, the one that Peter effectively wanted Jesus to take, is not necessarily God's path. Indeed, if we feel too comfortable in our faith, keeping challenges at arm's length, might it be that we have missed the point. But let's look at it another way. There are around 2.2 billion Christians in the world today, about a third of the world's total population. Can you imagine what the world would start to look like if a third of its population woke up tomorrow morning, denied themselves, took up their cross, whatever that might mean for them, and followed Jesus in the way of love? No military force would be necessary. The world would be transformed. After a week in which the Archbishop of Canterbury has been criticised for speaking out, I wonder what it might mean for you and for me to take up our cross and follow Jesus tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. How might having your primary focus on the things of God change the way you act in the workplace or in the way that you relate to that awkward person or in the way that you behave around your friends or in the things that you do in your spare time or even how you engage in worship and express your faith in the life of the church. Friends, I believe that's the challenge of this passage as we look at a narrative that happened and apply it to our lives. And it might sound like a huge ask, but maybe if it is, it is a fair ask, coming as it does from the one who sacrificially gave up his own life for you and for me. Amen.